Welcome to the Bloomberg Surveillance Podcast. I'm Tom Keen with David Gura. Daily, we bring you insight from the best of economics, finance, investment, and international relations. Find Bloomberg Surveillance on Apple Podcasts, SoundCloud, Bloomberg.com, and of course, on the Bloomberg. William Lee joining us now. He's the chief economist at the Milken Institute. He's in our Bloomberg 991 studios in Washington, D.C. Bill, great to speak with you once again. Hey, Devert. Let's start with uh, with this parlor game. Uh, given the news that we've gotten, that the president's scheduled to meet with Janet Yellen a bit later uh, this week, what have we learned about what the president's interested in uh, in a future Fed chair from who we've seen uh, pass through the doors of, of the White House over these last few weeks? I think, like unlike his own behavior, I think Trump really wants someone he can count on and is reliable and predictable. And so with Janet Yellen, he's seen her performance, but then she's also flip-flopped a little bit in the sense that she was a dove before and, and, and reluctant to, to, to normalize. And now she's insistent on normalizing, even though the data are not coming in to support the 2% uh, inflation. Of course, the excuse is what I've always called faith-based forecasting, which is I have a lot of faith in the Phillips curve. I know it's going to kick in, so trust me, it's going to come, and we better start normalizing now. I think the alternative for a guy like like John Taylor is – that that we have a he presents a framework and it's the Taylor rule and the I think the no nothings on Wall Street say oh my God he's such a hawk we're going to get incredibly high interest rates and I think the one thing that we know about John Taylor is that he's a sophisticated economist he knows when it is that he should not follow a rule uh, exactly even his own rule and so with with John what we have is a more predictable framework that we know he bases his decisions on but he also takes into account what's going on in the world and the key is he tells you how he's going to take into account what's going on in the world and when he's going to get off the rule. Uh, so given the two choices, I, of course, would favor John. Um, and, and, and the difficulty with Yellen um, and the language of the FOMC right now is that a lot of it is based on faith and the faith that Wall Street and the financial markets just don't have anymore, which is we don't believe inflation really is going to reach that 2 percent in the near term. With respect to those know-nothings you mentioned on, on Wall Street, what would this mean to, to the markets, the implementations of a more rules-based, less faith-based uh, approach to monetary policy? Well, so, so, so what's happening to long rates versus short rates? Um, if you really believe that the, the Fed is going to normalize to the, the near 3 percent uh, level, you have to ask yourself – what does that mean for inflation in the, in, the, in the long run? If you don't believe inflation is going to kick in, that means you're going to get a, a, a flattening of that yield curve. The short rates will go up, but the long rates will still be nailed because there's no inflation and because the real rate, the, the neutral real rate, is still near zero given that we have no productivity growth. If you believe that, for example, the, the, the tax increases will get to raise productivity and all that kind of stuff uh, and our star is going to start to rise, then indeed you will have a longer uh, a longer uh, long run interest rate that's going to be starting to creep up. Now, now, what, what does the Fed chair do in that circumstance? Well, the Fed chair should be encouraging those productivity increases, but that's that's going to come from tax policy and, quite frankly, from innovation, and that she has no control over. The one thing you, you can do is make market expectations go in a credible fashion to where you really believe they're going to go. And 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 right now, given the amount of slack in the economy. Even though the unemployment rate is so low and the unemployment rate is a lousy measure of slack, we know there's slack because there's a lot of – there's no inflation. And there's also been a lot of innovations, supply shocks that have helped to keep prices from going up. That is, pricing power that we have among producers, uh, especially service producers even, uh, are not as strong as they used to be. So the likelihood of rising inflation uh, is also going to be very low in the near term 
and and in the medium term. Bill, I mentioned a few moments ago Morgan Stanley's latest numbers reporting third quarter earnings here just a few minutes ago, and I look at fixed sales and trading beating uh, estimates. I look at uh, investment banking beating estimates uh, as well. Going back to last week at the banks that reported then, we see um, a lot of reporting in line with expectations. Banks doing fairly well here uh, in, in the third quarter. What, what is uh, the, the the role of rates, the role of this conversation about Feds and, and what we the Fed and what we're seeing here from the banks last week and this week? I think you're starting to see a shift in the role of banks, and and that's one of the things that we at Milken are, are trying to to incentivize in, in our research agenda, which is let's consider what the role of banks and intermediation is in a world where rates of return are low. Public markets are trading at very low rates of return, and investors are going into the private markets, private equity and, and, and venture capital. And these non-traded markets are a place where the large banks have a role of trying to, to hook investors into. And, and how they do that is, is going to be the, the key to making money in the future, whether it's bank lending or by way of structured products to try to get – uh, the bank lending into the hands of uh, pension funds, in- insurance companies, and longer-term investors. So the role of a bank and how a bank t- uh, operates in the future, that business model is going to have to change to accommodate mm. this new world of low inflation, low real returns, um, and and possibly more leverage. Um, one of the things that we always worry about, and especially for someone like me from the IMF, where I used to be in charge of the, um, uh, the analytic chapters of the Global Financial Stability Report, we're always concerned that leverage is going to bring about weaknesses in financial stability. But if you have a persistent low-rate environment, low-inflation environment, then you could have more leverage right. that could sustain the investment. William Lee with us. William Lee of the Milken Institute. Of course, you've heard him for years at Citigroup uh, on Bloomberg um, Surveillance. Good morning, David Gurr and Tom Keene. Thrilled that you're uh, with us uh, this morning. Bill Lee, I'm looking at sort of the mix of our economics and our markets. And also, I should point out, pound sterling, David Gurra, south on Governor Carney's comments, mm-hmm. 132.02. That's a significant drop there with Ster- a Swiss strength here, Swiss franc strength off the comments as well. But, you know, Billy, I, I, I look at all this discussion, and as you mentioned, the new business model, which means technology. Financial technology, I, it, absolutely. It was, a, it was a backstory at IMF World Bank, which is the total mystery we have of the technological impact and effect on all of our listeners. It's extraordinary, isn't it? Absolutely. And, and I think one of the things that, that we're misjudging is that, um, you know, I often have said to you, you know, I think the, the shadow economy, that new economy, the sharing economy is really quite small because Alan Kruger's estimate shows that it's about 1% of, of GDP. So you can say, oh, my God, we should ignore that. Yeah. But the pricing power influence of Airbnb and, 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 and Uber really is very pervasive. And I think that's the thing what most economists are underestimating, the positive supply shocks that are coming from these innovative ways of getting – services and goods to people. And, and I, that's a global well, phenomenon. But to, to Mr. Alper's wonderful book on the supply side economy and the supply shock, as you put it, does the supply shock mean a new adjustment in our traditional economics because there's too much stuff out there literally because of technology? Well, I think what, what this new technology is giving is free entry. And, and if you have free entry, that means that you don't have the kind of monopolistic pricing power that people use to raise profit margins. And so, so it's really mm-hmm. the not so much that we have too much stuff out there, right. but but the stuff that we have. If if we really like one particular thing, five competitors are going to come and give us that same thing very easily. And that's the key to the difference in this new world versus what we had before. And that's why the Phillips curve oh. model has to be adjusted. 
Billy, thank you so much uh, with the Milken Institute. pick up Foreign Affairs magazine and usually you're angry because you immediately see on the cover that this is going to be brilliant. It's on current politics or international relations. And then, David, you pick it up and the cover's America's Forgotten Wars. I'm like, what? Why am I looking at this? It's like, I don't get it. And then from the first page, which is a heartbreaking analysis of Afghanistan, it is every page of value, including a huge history, David Gura, of Stalin and Hitler, which I found just riveting. Ticking through the rest, there's Iraq, there's Syria. Gideon Rose joins us now. He's the editor of Foreign Affairs Magazine, joins us in our Bloomberg 1130 studios. It strikes me we don't have a good sense of how wars end these days. Yes, they're forgotten, but they don't end in the same way they did in the past. When you look at Afghanistan and say, what's the, the end game? Is there consensus about how that conflict is going to come to a close? Well, the best way to think about that is War is a military action to achieve some political result. And we tend to think, as Americans in particular, about the military side of things. And so we think that wars are about fighting and about bombs and about guns and the generals and so forth and beating up the enemy. Like as if it's some boxing match on a large scale when the fight ends when you knock the other guy out. But in reality, it's a political gesture. This was Clausewitz's whole point. And the goal of the war is not just a better peace, like a Catholic uh, social doctrine, but a stable political situation. So the way to end a war is to create a polity after the fact that can survive on its own or to take the territory and bring it into yourself and conquer it. Now, the basic problem that we had in Iraq and in Afghanistan and in many of these other conflicts that we're engaged in is we don't have a path to creating a stable country mm. to leave behind after we leave. And so we kind of don't really know what to do because if we walk away, everything will go back to hell in a handbasket. But if we stay, it's kind of difficult. So that's the fundamental challenge. There's no good, easy answer. And what this package really is about is how American strategic officials, how people who seriously take foreign policy with the respect that it deserves and military policy are trying to think through what U.S. policy should be in a variety of contexts, Afghanistan, Syria, Iraq, dealing with the Russian Eastern Front mm -hmm. cyber kind Homeland Security and so forth. So it's an attempt to say this is what serious professionals would be talking about if we were actually having the conversation on American national security that we should be having. Stanley McChrystal, retired General Stanley McChrystal, writing with a former lieutenant colonel from the Afghan Special Operations Forces he worked with while he was in uh, Afghanistan. What did you hear from the president when he spoke about the future of Afghanistan a few months ago uh, now? I, he wasn't uh, completely praised for, for what he had to say, but there were many who thought he was delivering a serious speech, thinking seriously about the, the future of that, uh, that conflict. What did you hear from him as he uh, addressed the troops? I thought the Afghanistan speech was uh, okay. It was less egregious than some of the other ones. Um, it was written for him and he said some of the right words. Um, I, I we, we have a real problem now with the president because we've never had a situation in which the most important player in the world is somebody whose words can't be taken seriously. And so uh, we actually have a piece coming up in a future issue that I'm thinking of in the working title, After Credibility. Uh, but it really is an interesting question. So I, I tend not to look at the president's speeches at this point, and I think most world leaders and most other people's don't, because he says different things, different days, doesn't really claim to understand what he's saying. And so it's better to watch U.S. foreign policy as if it's a uh, 
um, TV with the sound turned off. Now, to whom are you listening then? If, if the sound is turned off and you've got the, the radio on. So. I'm not listening. I'm actually <laughs> okay. watching. And so what you see is, again, essentially like what happened with Obamacare, which is the, the president and some of his advisors have clearly decided they would like to disrupt, destroy, and overturn the existing American foreign policy structure. Uh, unfortunately, they don't have the power to do that, and they don't have any idea of what to replace it with. So having tried to screw it up and failed because the professionals and other allies and so forth have kept the basic structure intact, uh, the president is now petulantly uh, trying to destroy it through unilateral action the same way he's doing Obamacare. So basically, the Iran deal decertification is exactly the same kind of move as the loss of the subsidies for Obamacare. It's a kind of spiteful attempt to screw up a decent program that was actually potentially working, even though he can't get rid of it with something better. Gideon, thank you so much for being with us today on television and radio. Can't say enough about Foreign Affairs Magazine, whatever your politics, um, just article to article, just terrific uh, reading. I might point out the book review, Joshua Green, uh, Mr. Bannon, in the back of the book talks about the... uh, uh, importance of Mr. Bannon in the drive forward. He'll forward. be on with me uh, today on TV as well. I should. Mr. Bannon will be. Uh, no, Mr. Oh. Bannon. Josh Green. Josh will Green. Be. <laughs> there you go. Coast to coast. Good morning, Bloomberg 106.1 FM, Boston. This is Bloomberg. Cast with us, and because we're going to be with him for a substantial time, we start with the joy in Douglas Cass's life of lining up a Dodgers Yankees World Series. Oh my series. gosh, could all that, stand up for the judge. <laughs> could that happen, Doug Cass? Oh, yeah, I think that I think that they were um, a bit spent. I know I was, and a lot of the yes. fans were after the Cleveland series coming back from a 2 0 deficit. Mm-hmm. And what, how exciting would it be for everyone if they came back from a yeah. 2-0 deficit in this series? I, think um, there's not... I, I just think they were exhausted. I, yeah. Yesterday was a great game, and they finally broke out and hitting, and that's what, what was missing in the first two games. To me, but I think, I think the world is looking for, I, I, you know my background, but I do believe that the world is looking forward to a Dodger-Yankee series. I, would suggest, I, don't, I can't recall what I the can't last get time. a word in edgewise here. Has Cass ever been on with us before? <laughs> I mean, I mean, it's like it's, it's unreal. Doug, to, to, one more thing on baseball. To me, the Yankees pitching staff is almost Dodgers-like from another time and place. I mean, they don't have a weak pitcher. They make you know, there's levels of them in that. But I think right. it's been way undersold. Oh, look at the last three games. What did they give up? Two, three runs? Yeah. No, right. Yeah. Okay, right. enough. They of just me. needed the hitting to <clears throat> the clock in, okay. and that's what happened. Is Jim Palmer there, and if, the, and if yeah. the judge and if the judge gets hot, along with yes and Didi, we got something going for us. Okay, yes, in the Bronx, we have to explain that to our global audience. Mr. Gregorius filled the biggest shoes in sports this year of one D Jeter, <laughs> and Mr. Gregorius has done better than good. And also a shout out to James Palmer of yes. the Baltimore Orioles. He predicted this. Who just predicted it. He nailed the Houston call uh, earlier this year with Douglas Cass. Okay, Doug, on to investment. You've been a pinata for being short Dow 22,956. I want you to review, and, and Doug is such a class act, he'll do this clearly. I want you to review how a short survives in a bull market. Well, in preparation for this interview, as important as it is to me, (laughs) 
I was speaking yesterday um, with one of our mutual acquaintances, Richard Fisher, the former Dallas Fed president. Yes. And he reminded me of something his mother inculcated into his head when he was a kid. She said, skepticism is the chastity of the intellect. Uh-huh. It's not to be surrendered lightly. Uh, <laughs> Rich's mom, whose name was Babe Fisher, was a, uh, a stoic Norwegian South African woman and mother, and very smart, much like my yeah. Bronx-wise Grandma Kofax. So my advice is, you might not want to listen to my cautious advice, but one would be wise to listen to Mother Fish's advice to stay chaste and remain. But seriously, a Doug, caveat, Doug, Doug. <laughs> and, and this goes to another great short, James Chanos. When you have skepticism like that, you, the answer on position sizing is you bet small amounts of money. Right. That's really right. the exactly. pro rule. As we discussed in our, our last segment about four or five weeks ago, the key to um, uh, maintaining your investment health as a short-biased investor, the way Jim and I are, is to keep positions small, to have remarkably uh, strict risk disciplines consistent with one's time frames and risk profile or risk appetite, and to take, to be quite honest, a lot of very small losses to pre- prepare yeah. yourself what is inevitably going to be a right. rather large decline. You remember Warren Buffett's famous quote, a bull market is like sex. It feels the best right near is the end. Is this appropriate for radio, <laughs> Ken? i got to go to our chief technical director, Ken Philia. Is this appropriate for radio? Oh, well. Anything Warren Buffett says is appropriate. Okay, David, jump in here and save the interview. Now, let me. We've been talking a little bit about technology, the role of changing technology, Doug. And I know you've written about Tesla in recent weeks, uh, looking at that company, of yeah, course. Yesterday we heard the announcement of a, a number of layoffs at that company. The company's behind them producing its, its, its Model 3. What do you observe from Elon? One of Elon Musk's company uh, over these recent weeks. I still, you know, I, I have a one of the, getting back to your prior question. You know, how do you survive as a short a short seller in a, a market advance that has no dips? Um, is that one of the things is a non-starter is you stay away from shorts that you might believe are shorts like Netflix and Tesla, where the short interest as measured by the number of shorts divided by the float, which is the outstanding shares less insider holdings, is when that is when the short ratio is large or when the short interest as a percentage of the average daily volume is large, that's a non starter to me because I prefer I prefer to short companies that sell widgets I understand whose business model um, is being misinterpreted by the bullish consensus. So you stay away from shorts like that where short interest, and this way you get a, you, you're not involved in short squeezes, which is the, um, which the, which is basically the death knell to most amateur short sellers. And uh, you know, you mentioned Netflix. Did, did anything change about your perspective yesterday in light of the earnings that we got? The fact that this company still you know added five million new uh, subscribers over the the last quarter. What are the uh, what are the warning signs? What are the, what's what's the alarm that you see with that company now? Well, I'm actually writing something up right now for um, uh, the Street and Real Money Pro, um, and the issue there is valuation. Uh-huh. But we know valuation as well as investor sentiment is a particularly poor timing tool. But when you have uh, you know 123 multiple to last 12 months trailing EBITDA. 
um, it and it makes your hair stand up on your neck, you should be concerned. Mm-hmm. So I call uh, on Netflix. I, I'm actually writing a piece right now called uh, "Sell Netflix, uh, Don't Short Netflix." But the problem with the markets, um, uh, as I've mentioned, is technology from two standpoints. The Fangs, F-A-N-G, save Netflix, to me, uh, face uh, a situation where their technologies have advanced much more rapidly than regulations, particularly antitrust regulations. Mm -hmm. So they face this this existential uh, political and antitrust risk which overnight could uh, diminish their um, their profit growth, profit and and then top line sales growth forecast. So this is why I would avoid all mm-hmm. the fangs. Well, In too- terms of technology away from it, we um, you know there is a number of things that that right you know make makes me think that we live in head-shaking times and the role of technology on the market I've been writing about well, in the last week or so, which is very important. True, Douglas Cass, Seabreeze Investment. We've gotten the baseball out of the way as much as we can. Um, Doug, one of the really downsides of this October has been having an intern who's a Dodgers fan. Um, it, it's it's proven very stressful. Uh, she is into National League ball and all that. And we, we talk, maybe we'll get some time here. We can talk about the DH as well. Right now, let's talk about the alpha in investment, which is dead out there. You know, Doug, Reminiscence, the classic book, when it's boring, you go away, except we're not. It's long time boring here. What do you do in a boring market? <laughs> well, I, 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 we are in this virtuous cycle. And this is, to me, the root of my concern. Um, we've had this bull market in complacency, which has been stimulated by, obviously, the excess liquidity provided by central bankers around the world. This has served up the virtuous cycle of fund flows into ever-popular ETFs that buy not when stocks are cheap, but when inflows are readily flowing. And then we have the dominance of technology, which I mentioned to David before, the dominance of risk parity, volatility, trending, who worship at the altar of price momentum brought on by those ETFs who are agnostic to value, to balance sheets, to income statements. And then finally, we have the reduced role of active investors like hedge funds. So all the slack is picked up by the quants and the ETFs, and this has created an almost systemic buy-in-the-dip mentality and conditioning. I'm going to give you two stats that I'm sure you don't know about. Uh, This is also being exacerbated, this conditioning and this consistent buying, by the fact that in 1999, there were 7,800 listed securities, individual securities, not ETFs. Mm-hmm. Today, there are 3,900. Um, delisting takeovers have reduced it. And secondly, of the remaining shares, companies that are listed, those 3,900, 17% of their shares in those public companies that remain have been retired through buybacks. So all this has created this favorable supply and demand. And... Um, it's coupled with this precarious positioning by speculators, by speculators who have profited by shorting volatility and have gotten so one-sided by shorting the VIX futures that any quick market sell-off is going to be exacerbated into a flash crash, much like portfolio insurance's role in the previous large down, uh, drawdown in October of 1987. And in turn, if this occurs, and I'm not saying it's occurring 
David and Tom, but the probability of it is growing exponentially. In turn, this will force the very leveraged quant funds, those risk parities, um, to de-risk and to reduce the chances of a fast upturn back in the markets. And I'll end by saying the virtuous cycle could end if ETFs start to sell. Who is left mm-hmm. to buy? David? What's the, uh, the, the role, Doug, that the, that the economy is playing in your thesis at this point? Now, we've been talking an awful lot here about who might be the next sure. uh, Fed chair, what the, the macroeconomic landscape looks like. How do you fold that into to what you're looking at and what you're investing in? Sure. Well, I, you know, I believe that history doesn't repeat itself, but it rhymes. And since post-World uh, War II, we've had 13 Fed rate hiking cycles. Um, Ten have landed into recession. So to me, the question is next year will, you know, in, in the face of a mature economic recovery, with a lot of um, political and regu- regulatory um, black swans over the horizon, are we going to have a recession or are we going to have a soft landing? I don't remember the last time we had subpar growth of, say, two, two and a quarter percent real GDP and had an economic downturn, but there's little room for error. I do know, if you read the Barron's uh, big money poll over the weekend, 87% of investors think the market will be higher in 12 months. So to me, they're betting on tax reform, which looks increasingly problematic. And then obviously, there's the message of the bond market. And if you look at the twos, tens uh, curve or the fives, 30 curve, there are about 80 basis points and 88 basis points, respectively, and these are essentially at uh, 10-year lows. And they're well, talking; they're giving you a message on growth. Doug Cash, thank you so much. How do the Dodgers look against the Astros or the Yankees? Um, I think that the Yankees will beat the Dodgers in six. Well, what about the Astros? Who? <laughs> and, we'll, and we'll leave it there. Doug Cass with Seabreeze. Thank you so much. We say good morning in Houston, Sirius XM, Channel 119. I think we lost, you know, I think, think like, you know, we had a big audience down in Texas. You think they just all hung up? They well, no, no, no. They would stay with us. They right. understand Doug Cass <laughs> bleeds Yankee blue. Has to. Do you realize we got through that entire two blocks without once mentioning the Red Sox of Boston? Very true. Doug Cass, our Citrus League correspondent, uh, yes. talked with him in the He's very end of season, which is the off-season for him. But, yeah. yeah. Okay. Doug Cass with Seabreeze Partners. He's been very cautious on the market to short, and it has been sport, as he has very clearly stated out on uh, his different writings and different appearances as well. Thanks for listening to the Bloomberg Surveillance Podcast. Subscribe and listen to interviews on Apple Podcasts, SoundCloud, or whichever podcast platform you prefer. I'm on Twitter at Tom Keen. David Gura is at David Gura. Before the podcast, you can always catch us worldwide on Bloomberg Radio.